0: If you are 65 or over, or you have a weak immune system, you can now get your second COVID-19 booster vaccine. Your vaccine is due four months after your last vaccine. It will improve your protection from COVID-19. You can book a vaccination centre appointment on hsc.ie or contact a participating GP or pharmacy. For more information on your second booster or to book an appointment, visit hsc.ie. Or call our team in HSE Live on 1800 700 700 from the HSE for us all.
1: The Future Proof Podcast from News Talk,
0: proudly
2: supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag Believe in Science.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, thanks for subscribing, downloading, and rating as always. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks for your comments. You can email us science at or you can tweet us. We're at NewstalkScience. Uh, coming up in this week's program, we're going to be looking at um, the, the the big questions that AI is going to start having to answer soon. And when it comes to making decisions that affect us, particularly when it comes to life and death, we're going to speak to a guy called JF Bonifon, who's talked about the trolley problem when it comes to cars and how we may soon need to start programming them with morality. Uh, that's in a few minutes' time. Uh, but first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us uh, via Skype is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from iCrike, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. You're both very welcome. Our first story. I have a dream. <laughs> that my poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today
2: has to do with skin cancer. It does, Jonathan, and actually also to do with AI, which I know we'll be covering later in the programme and Diagnostics has been an area of medicine that AI has shown a lot of potential. So there's been numerous studies which shows that computers are pretty much just as good as humans at picking up uh, cancers and and other conditions, particularly when it comes to analysing images. Um, But we know more recently, actually, that algorithms for facial recognition using AI If they've been trained on poor data sets, so data sets that are racially biased or where there's been bad labeling of the images, they can misidentify people of color, particularly women of color. So researchers in Oxford saw that the NHS were going to roll out AI to try and identify skin cancer. So basically looking at pictures of potential skin cancers and using AI to see, are, do these like look like they're sinister sinister cancers? Um, so these researchers went and looked for all the open access data sets of images of skin cancer and they found 21 of them. Uh, and what they found was only a, 11 of those data sets only included images from Europe, America, and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, only one of them was from Asia, two were from South America, and there was no representation of, of a data set from Africa at all. Mm. Uh, and in fact, very few of the images, only about 2% of over 100,000 images had the skin type of the individual recorded. And overall, there was a massive underrepresentation of lesions or pictures of lesions from people with darker skin. Um, so this raised concerns with them that perhaps these algorithms aren't being trained on unbiased data sets.
1: Yeah, well, it, it sounds like that is the case very much so, but there's also an extra limitation in that these are open access data sets, right? And most of uh, the really high quality research is not in open access, or is that is that unfair?
2: I think that's a fair point, Jonathan, but again, it, it depends where the AI is being trained and a lot of AI is being trained using data from everywhere. So it's quite likely, even if there's sort of um, proprietary data sets going in, it's also using these public data sets. And I don't know that there's any reason to think that sort of private data sets or closed data sets from research would be any better than the ones that we're seeing here. I mean, this is an emerging problem in digital health. In fact, it's been defined as health data poverty. And, And what that is, it's the inability for groups or peoples or populations to benefit from new innovations and discoveries because there is a scarcity of data about them. So, so they then can't benefit from these new technologies. So I think it's something that researchers and, and, and health authorities need to keep in mind when we're considering rolling out new technologies, particularly something like AI, where we famously know it's kind of the junk in, junk out. If we don't put in good data, we're not going to get out good data.
1: What exactly did they find in this study?
2: Well, interestingly, what they didn't find and I couldn't find looking around was whether these were actually performing poorly. On darker skinned people. So so interesting, this was almost like a a thinking in advance of what might go wrong. And and in a way, I was glad to see that. You know, they were obviously concerned because they'd seen what happened with the facial recognition software. And that was out there being widely used. So this is almost like a preemptive strike to get things right early on and to make sure we can stand over and explain the AI, the ai that we're using rather than just having it as a black box and we sort of put data in into it and hope for the best uh, when we then put lots of other data in to be assessed so i think this is a really positive uh, sort of way to start looking at health data in ai and ai together
1: yeah, not to give too much away from the interview later on, but uh, this is a, a situation where AI uh, may help scientists choose which patients to treat um, or what treatments work. And if there is underrepresentation in that, uh, we have a big problem.
2: Uh, absolutely. And, and imagine a technology that's only suitable, really, and is effective in only certain groups of people. And um, that would obviously be very, you know, unequal.
1: Um, Fergus, our second story is a really interesting one, uh, Irish research looking at Chinese dynasties.
2: Yes. So the
3: rise and fall of Chinese dynasties. So this is a study that was collaborated between Trinity College here in Dublin and also Zhejiang University in China. And what they were looking at was to see if there was a relationship between the collapse of dynasties in China and volcanic eruptions. So why they looked at China was because there's such a long history there of complex civilizations that have been well documented throughout history. So these civilizations and dynasties would rise and fall, and they were trying to see if there was a relationship between those rising and falling with Volcanic eruptions
1: Why would they even Hypothesise that? Like sometimes I hear about this and go yeah That makes sense I can see why they would think that Why would they think That the rise and fall Of Chinese dynasties Had anything to do With volcanic eruptions?
3: So volcanic eruptions Are actually uh, Really Important In the course Of human history So If there are Large volcanic eruptions This can lead to pretty Dramatic changes in climate Because Huge amounts Of Sunlight reflecting sulfate aerosols can be released into the atmosphere, and this can cool and dry climates. And what that means for us is this can reduce the amount of crops that are available. It can lead to widespread death of livestock. And if a society, or in the case of China, if a dynasty is tinkering on the edge and is quite unstable, this volcanic eruption and the cooling and drying that can occur can actually tip that civilization over the edge. Um, So how they did this then is they they looked at the ice records. So um, from places like Greenland and Antarctica, and they were looking to see where is there evidence of significant amounts of volcanic activity. Yeah. And then they went through the historical records so the written record and the history books on China to see, right, in the case of intense periods of volcanic activity, is that shortly followed by a collapse in one of the dynasties? Because you've had pretty huge collapse in dynasties in China, F- for instance, like the Tang Dynasty, which collapsed in 907 um, AD, and the Ming Dynasty, which collapsed in 1644. These were these were huge societal changes, and they wanted to see, is the trigger point for this, a volcano somewhere in the earth, and and is, is one geohazard actually playing out across the entire globe?
1: And so they found... A correlation, presumably, but it sounds like there, there could be a causal link. Is that too much to, to they, say? Well, they found something
3: for sure. So they found that uh, 62 of the 68 dynastic collapses were closely preceded by at least one volcanic eruption.
1: When you say one volcanic eruption, one volcanic eruption in China or one volcanic eruption in the world?
3: Anywhere in the world. It need not be in China at all. Um, so, so it was. Huh. It was. Um, so, depending on the size of the volcano, um, if, it, if it was at the other side of the world, and if it was ejecting enough material into the atmosphere, its proximity to China didn't really matter. Now, it's oh, not, But,
1: but what I, I guess my point is, uh, this isn't just a happy coincidence. You're talking about volcano eruptions that could have had some material effect on people in China.
3: Exactly. All yes. oh, right. Okay. Exactly that. Now, That's more solid then. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this doesn't mean that every time there's a large volcanic eruption, there's a collapse in civilization in China. But what it does mean is that depending, so so the historical context here is really important because if one of the Chinese dynasties was, um, was quite unstable at the time and there was a relatively small volcanic eruption, then that may have been enough to actually trigger the collapse of that particular dynasty due to... A shortage in the amount of crops due to livestock and other climatic changes on the other side very large eruptions and um, they found a correlation whereby if it was a really really big eruption it could precipitate uh, the collapse of one of these dynasties even if the stability at the time was very good so the historical context here is key and what they say more broadly is that the eruptions that. That these ancient chinese dynasties had to deal with um were much larger than any of the eruptions that we've had to deal with um in modern times so we need to be prepared uh to be able to to handle i guess the next big eruption um one interesting thing i I would say is that um it's not just uh, the collapse of civilizations and dynasties that volcanoes uh, can elicit but uh, volcanoes actually gave rise to the bicycle
1: as well you can't just leave it there, Fergus. I was, I I w- I
3: w- <laughs> And I won't just leave it there. So back in uh, 1815, so Mount Tambora exploded. And uh, it's one of the biggest eruptions that we've had in modern times. And such was the amount of material ejected into the atmosphere that that led to widespread cooling. And um, especially around Europe, the amount of crops that could be harvested uh, was reduced. The amount of livestock that could be fed off those crops was reduced and obviously at the time the horse was incredibly important in transporting humans so there was a there was a scarcity of horses because there was a scarcity of crops and huge efforts were put into effectively replacing the horse and I think it was a German inventor shortly after Mount Tambora exploded that basically came up with the first prototype of the bicycle as a replacement to the horse
1: amazing stuff um brilliant so ruth our third story has to do with cats
2: i know yes researchers have found another new intellectual ability in cats so no surprise to cat people um so we've known for a while that cats have something called object permanence and um, which this is the ability to know that just because you can't see something it hasn't disappeared basically and it's something that dogs have uh elephants, ourselves, you know, other great apes. And we know kids can do this from about age two. So it's why if you play peekaboo with a baby, you know, they think you've disappeared when you cover up your face and people won't be surprised. Cat owners will, will know that if you kick a cat's toy onto the couch, they will sit at the side of the couch staring, waiting to get the toy out. Or they'll hmm. sit in front of a mouse hole because they know the mouse is inside. Um, but researchers in Japan decided to put this to the test when it came to cats hearing. So they wanted to investigate how cats responded to their owners' voices. And I have to say, in one of the methods sections that I've enjoyed reading the most for a long, long time, they describe how they took 50 cats, 27 of whom live in cat cafes. Um, so who knew? These are places in Japan where you can pay to go and play with cats and watch them. Okay. Um, and tw- Of course it is. And 23 of them were house cats. So. The experiment was quite simple. They they placed the cat on its own in a room. They, give it t- they gave it time to settle and get comfortable. There was two doors leaving the room and, and one window. And they put a speaker outside each of the doors, which were at opposite sides of the room. And they set up five video cameras in the room so they could closely watch the cat. They then used the speakers to play recordings of the owner, calling the cat by their name or a stranger calling the cat by their name and they repeated this call a number of times and they videoed the cat's reaction
0: and what they found
2: was that if the cat heard their name being called from the same speaker they were unsurprised and and they were like that's fine but if they heard their owner particularly so a voice that they recognized calling from one door And then instantly from the other door, only seconds later, they seemed very surprised because it seemed to imply (laughs) to them that their owner had sort of teleported from one one door to the other. Um, Now, they didn't have the same reaction when they didn't recognise the voice, um, but... (laughs) Again I did enjoy I went in and watched some of the videos which they show of the cats being surprised they showed level 1 surprise and level 4 surprise I mean I'm I'm not a cat person but I have to say I couldn't see a huge difference between the levels of surprise for for 1 and 4 but I, I suppose what they're suggesting is that the the cats are able to track their owner's location by hearing sound. So I guess if you're calling your cat and they're not coming, it just means that they're ignoring you, not that they don't know where you are.
1: <laughs> uh, our final story, Fergus, has to do with teeth.
3: Yes, and this brings a whole new meaning to the to the phrase, I have a pain in my tooth. So this is a fascinating study that is actually looking at baby teeth as... A record of stress that the mother um, was undergoing during her pregnancy. So it's 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 um, it's really interesting because it's using effectively a physical marker um, in children's teeth to see what was the level um, of stress or or in some instances pain that their mother was undergoing during her pregnancy. So this is based um, in, in Massachusetts General Hospital, but it's using a study called the Children of the 90s study. And it's a long-term health research project based out of the University of Bristol. And what it's, what it's ultimately trying to achieve is that it's trying to effectively predict which children may be more likely to develop mental health issues later in their life. And it's using their teeth as a means of predicting that which sounds quite unusual yeah <laughs> but the science on this is quite strong so anthropologists have long studied the teeth of people from past eras to learn about their lives and you can think of your tooth as the same way um, that you think of the growth rings in a tree so if you think about a tree during um during a very good summer with lots of sun and lots of rain the growth rings would be very thick and less so if the summer is poor when it comes to your baby teeth so these are these are teeth that are developing when you're when you're in the womb so they're they're already developing then so all baby teeth have stress lines and these are a record of the amount of stress that the baby was um experiencing during the formation of the tooth and there's one particular stress line called the neonatal line and this team of researchers they analysed about 70 teeth from children um and they also surveyed their mothers to see what was the level of stress that, that they were undergoing during their pregnancy. So what they found was the stress lines in the teeth of babies whose mothers were undergoing a lot of stress, those stress lines were a lot thicker as opposed to those um, who had a relatively trouble-free pregnancy. So by looking at the teeth, they are able to see, right, what stress did the baby receive in, um, in the womb? And that is actually quite a good predictor of the likelihood of developing mental health issues later in life. So it's almost like a safeguard or a predictor of which children may need to be looked at more closely and maybe may need an an earlier intervention in their life.
1: I suppose in terms of mechanism, there's two things there. One is the potential that um, a woman who is stressed in a a time when um, I suppose she should be able to relax, maybe that is some sort of weak indicator as to the sort of life um or the the regular amount of stress that woman might undergo uh or the other is some sort of um mechanism in the formation of the of the fetus that happens because of the stress the hormones uh, and the things that are going on within the woman's body during um development right
3: yeah so it's so what they think is that if if the if the if the fetus has experienced a lot of um or receiving a lot of cortisol from the mother which is a stress hormone, then that actually interferes with how the enamel is made on the tooth. So it's a really good way um, of tracking and recording that.
1: Absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Fergus McCullough from iCRAG and from Science Foundation Ireland, Dr. Ruth Freeman. Thanks very much for joining us. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, every time you get behind the wheel of a car, you'll have to deal with countless driving decisions that get you safely from A to B. And it could be argued that those decisions amount to what are essentially life or death considerations. But self-driving cars might soon have to make those judgments for you. And settling on a universal moral code for the AI that drives your car could be a problem. Jean-François, or J.F. Bonafont, is research director at the French Centre National de Recherche Scientifique and author of The Car That Knew Too Much. Uh, J.F., welcome to the program. Before I, I get into this, I do want to acknowledge I've had conversations with AI folks before, and they, they say to me, you know, the trolley problem, which is what we're going to talk about today, isn't the biggest problem facing AI. Uh, Self-driving cars, and I want to acknowledge that from the bat. This is uh, an interesting philosophy problem, but it's not the biggest thing uh, or the biggest challenge that we face in in self-driving cars. But it is one of the most interesting questions, um, and that's uh, presumably what drove you to drive to write this book, Jean-Francois.
4: Yes, absolutely. And you're right that the biggest challenge or the biggest thing about the self-driving cars is that they should save lives. They should try to minimize the number of people who die in crashes, and so deciding who dies in an unavoidable crash is certainly not what AI types should spend their time on.
1: So um, tell me a little bit about the book, and we can then dive
4: into your research. Well, the book was, uh, for me, the opportunity to explain what follows once you accept the very basic premise, which is that self uh, driving cars will not save everyone. Uh, they will continue being in crashes. And uh, that means that we, as a society, have to we have to agree about how many crashes we allow them to have and what kind of crashes we allow them to have.
1: This is a really interesting question in the context of COVID, because at the moment countries are trying to grapple with opening the country and allowing uh, commerce and trade and um, travel, and and weighing that against the risk to human life that that happens when uh, when when we do that uh, and there's a similar sort of trade with any new technology when we introduced driverless cars um we have to understand that they they will still have accidents um and we have to figure out what the acceptable level of accidents is and that's a tricky one because because it's new it's sort of viewed differently um than how we view accidents on the roads today
4: it is very true it is very true that uh uh, we are sort of familiar with the idea that technology can be dangerous and that we have to agree about what is the acceptable level of dangerousness compared to the services that uh, technology can uh, that can get but for cars there is this very strange feeling that we used to be in charge of driving the car and know we're making ourselves vulnerable to the decision of a machine and that's something that is psychologically very new indeed
1: so. Talk to me about the the idea when you say um that these cars are making decisions, what sort of decisions do they make that 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 create a moral dilemma
4: so I as I think you said in the introduction the very basic kind of decision that the car can make is simply to get closer or further away from another road users like closer to a pedestrian but further away from a cyclist or closer to a cyclist, but farther away from a truck. And the sum of all these decisions is going to result in different number of casualties on the road. So that's a moral dilemma. And then there's the kind of outrageous moral dilemma or very extreme moral dilemma that I've been studying for years, which is uh, the moment where when the crash is unavoidable and the car just has to decide who's going to survive and who's going to be killed in the crash.
1: Essentially, the, the car can make a decision that that we naturally wouldn't be able to make consciously. We, we presumably just work off our instincts and, and we, we just drive based on, on gut and, and reaction to what's happening in front of us. But these machines uh, in the in the future, if not now, would be able to identify very quickly the probability of the loss of life of a number of different objects and be able to possibly even recognize what sort of objects those are, young woman, a group
4: of children, um, car or a bicycle, right? This is true. Uh, the cars can already identify, you know, uh, bicyclists versus pedestrians versus cars, of course. Wow. Uh, they can also quite easily identify children. And the question is, as soon as they can identify children on the road, should they treat them differently?
1: Mm. So you wanted to answer this question with some research and you amassed a huge number of responses. Can you tell me what questions you were asking of the public and what you found?
4: Well, we uh, we asked millions of questions to the public. And that was what was strange and new with this research that that when we wanted to. Know what the public, I mean, the people who were going to buy the cars, but also the people who were going to walk in the neighborhoods where the cars would uh, drive. We wanted to know what they wanted the car to do in the case of a moral dilemma. But the problem is, there are so many possible moral dilemmas, so many possible price situations where you want to know, for example, if people would agree for a car to sacrifice it to adult passengers to save one kid on the road, for example so that's just one situation but we had millions of situations like this so we could not do social science the classic way by just interviewing people or asking them questions because you cannot interview people when you have one million questions so we had to find a new way to do this and that was the birth of the moral machine experiment what is the moral machine experiment so once we realized that we had way too many questions to ask people and that we needed massive uptake of our survey across the world to get uh, useful data, we created a website that quite simply just froze at you crash scenarios and ask you what the car should do. So that's the basic, the centerpiece of the website. But the thing that we tried to do was to make this website viral. That is to create the first viral scientific survey. And that was quite an adventure. And I'm telling the story in that book of how we had to invent a new way to do behavioral social science.
1: So this is really interesting. you got a huge number. How many people took part in the survey and how many questions were answered? Uh,
4: nowadays, I think we've crossed the 10 million people bar uh, with more than 100 million uh, questions answered. Wow.
1: That, and, that's and, a lot. And so each of these questions poses a hypothetical scenario in which the mm-hmm. d- the driver has to decide if they were in the, the driving seat, which passengers or pedestrians, cyclists or road users they would sacrifice in order of priority is that is that what you're asking
4: that's yeah i know this is terrible but (laughs) essentially each question shows you a situation where the car is going to kill someone there's no uh, there's no alternative to that the car is going to kill someone but you have to decide who's going to die in the crash and many many people find that very uncomfortable especially people who come to this experiment with like rules that they want to follow and the very common and very uncomfortable experience for people is to find that their rules fail them by the first scenarios essentially because these situations are horribly complicated to to i mean to 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 make a decision about
1: yeah you'd like to think that you are a moral and ethical person but of course that's a very culturally and individually specific thing right i mean how many young lives is is your life worth i mean it's a awful question to ask, but if we're going to be programming cars or other machines with value systems to, to make decisions in, in real time, I suppose it's something you do want to get to the bottom of if, if it's not just a very interesting philosophical
4: exercise. Right, exactly. I mean, it, it is probably the first time that a machine has to do that in real time, because there are other examples where a machine make this kind of decision. I mean, the one example I can think about are kidney transplants, where we have very, very complex algorithms trying to decide who's, uh, who's got priority for mm-hmm. a kidney transplant among many number of patients. So but that's not real time. Uh, no, for the cars, yes, we unfortunately, have to decide beforehand we cannot just wait and see how many times this happens or the kind of situations where this happens we have to make the decision beforehand and that's very difficult
1: what i find really interesting is that you found three main groups within the general population these 10 million people who've taken part in the survey Mm. um that that value lives and, and different types of lives in different ways. Can you take me through the these groups of responses?
4: Right. So uh, uh, when we got data from, I think, close to 200 territories, uh, we just used an algorithm to make clusters, to identify blocks or clusters of countries that seem to uh make the same decisions in the moral machine experiments. And the algorithm, without knowing the physical position of the countries, uh, converged on three blocks, which are essentially uh, the uh, global west, let's say, uh, the global south, and uh, then the third block, which would be uh, Asian and Middle East countries. And these three clusters behave slightly differently, but it's very important that I say right now that qualitatively people always have the same preferences across the world in every country in the world people prefer to save younger lives rather than older lives for example right and in every country in the world people prefer to save women over over men but the strength of these preferences varies quite a lot across culture and this is where we find the differences between these three blocks
1: what about I know sometimes when we play this um, philo- philosophical trolley problem game, uh, sometimes you might say, well, you know, the young child wasn't wearing a helmet uh, or the uh, old lady uh, or the old man crossing is, is, is erratic and drunk or, you know, those sort of uh, factors about behavior, do they factor into your scenarios or, or was it simply a matter of trying to figure out uh, how you prioritize women and children and men?
4: So we 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 did have something like that, which is that we introduced uh, uh, crossing lights, pedestrian lights. You see what I mean, right? Someone breaking so, the
1: so someone walking through a red yeah. light. Do they is their yeah. worth life worth less than someone who uh, waits for the exactly, green light? Oh my God,
4: exactly. So you have jaywalkers and people who cross legally the street, and then we found that uh, when people. Are jaywalking their lives uh, is deprioritized by people, and there we find quite a lot of variation across the world, which is that essentially people from uh, countries uh, with the weakest rule of law, with that is pe- places where people uh, very commonly break rules and are not uh, systematically punished for that, people in these places were very relaxed. About jaywalkers, mm. and they did not punish them that much. But then, people in countries in countries where the rule is uh, of law is very strong, uh, were especially severe uh, for uh, with jaywalkers in our scenarios. I'm thinking so of Sing-
1: Singapore and Switzerland being um, very serious rule um, setters, and, and my experience traveling in Indonesia and India, crossing roads, being the other side of that, that spectrum.
4: Yeah, your intuition is quite correct, I must say. And, uh, and actually, if you want to check it, if you go to the Moral Machine website, you can, of course, take the survey, but you can also explore the results uh, comparing every country that you want. So you can actually check every country that you know and see how people respond in that country.
1: OK, so you've talked about um, blocks of essentially the west, east and south, although that's mm-hmm. being a bit crude about it. What, what does that mean then, for example, in, in terms of making decisions with how to program these cars? Is there then a sort of a blueprint that you implement if you're selling a Catholic Cadillac in, in, <laughs> uh, in Italy versus, uh, you know, uh, a, a Muslim M.G.? Uh, in Abu Dhabi, um, how, how, do you, uh, how do you work that? Like, how do you put these moral ideas into the decision-making matrix of a car without mm-hmm. already making an ethical
4: decision by doing that? Right. So, uh, well, the uh, problem is what do we do of this data? And that's always been a big question mark. Once we know what people in all these countries want, should we give it to them? <laughs> that is, should policymakers simply you know, use the data from the moral machine experiment and turn them into law? Uh, and we've never been comfortable with that interpretation of uh, our work. I've never been comfortable with that interpretation. I think that these data are useful for policymakers mostly to anticipate decisions that they need to carefully explain to the population. For example, in Germany, uh, the uh, ethics com- the German ethics committee about s- for self-driving cars said that they thought it was uh, impossible to take into account the age of the potential victims. So no priority for the life uh, of the lives of children. The problem is the German population very much wants the lives of children to be prioritized. Hmm. So if so, what we're saying is if the German government want to not use that priority, fine. But they should know about the public opinion in their country, and they should realize that they need to explain that to their population. So, you know, anticipating the friction with your own population, do whatever you think is the right thing to do, but know what's going to create a problem with your population. And sometimes, and this is another example with Germany, the German ethics committee said, we don't know if the cars should save the greater number of lives. We don't know if it's oh. okay for it, for a car to uh, kill one pedestrian to save five, and they huh. said it's not like we want to make it. You know, we don't think it should be mandated. We don't. We don't think it should be prohibited. We don't know. But there are arguments for and against. And yeah. what we say is, okay, when your experts cannot decide, then just use public opinion as a tiebreaker, and then you can go and actually check with the moral machine data and realize that your population is strongly in favor. Of car killing one person to save five, so if the experts can't decide, then you can use people' opinion as, as a tiebreaker. Ah, uh,
1: God, it's very um, tricky, isn't it? Um, and it sort of would make you not want to authorize the use of self-driving cars at all, because then who's responsible? Is is it the insurer? Is it is it the engineer who programmed the code? is it the government that you sue for not valuing your life over another but you, you can mm. sort of see that the further you push this i mean i was joking about a muslim mg but um uh, you know there are definite people who have very strict priorities in america um some mm. who believe the life of the unborn child is far more important than than the life of uh, the, the mother there are mm. uh, people who who value uh, certain cultures over others
4: i mean this could get extremely ugly. Right, which is exactly why I think what we don't want is to have some kind of custom moral setting for your car. That we should never sell cars <laughs> where the, the user, I mean, the people buying the car can just, you know, tweak the settings to say which lives should be prioritized or not. Yeah. That would be a terrible, terrible idea for the reason you, you just explained. Uh, and I don't think either that, industry the car makers want to make this kind of decision for people because they realize these are moral dilemmas the the operating word here is dilemma meaning that there is no correct response so whatever they do they will be blamed by some people for the Mm. decision so so the only the only part that can actually make that decision is the government the regulator
1: yeah i can see how this can get really really tricky but um just to just to reiterate bringing self driving cars into our roads once they're um, able to 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 follow the rules of the road correctly would be a much much safer world than the one we live in today removing the human error from most of our crashes um would be a much preferable world but it does throw up really interesting questions can i just ask you one final question what have the car makers made of this do they think this is just um hype and and um, and nonsense or do they think there's something we need to consider here.
4: I think they were very defensive uh, at the start when uh, there was a possibility that they would be asked to find a solution to this. And that at some point, this burden shifted to policymakers and know that I think that the position of car makers is fine. Just let us know what we have to do and we'll do it.
1: Really interesting um, talking with you and the book goes into detail how this incredible um, research came about and all of the different decisions that people make um, when they value others lives. It's called The Car That Knew Too Much, uh, Jean-François Bonifant. Merci. (laughs) Merci. I have to say, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And as I said, Aidan, producer of the show, joins me now to go through some of your comments from last week. As I said to him, like I know this isn't like the burning issue for AI, but um, uh, it is a it is an interesting one to think about. Uh, you know that that you know when it comes to dialysis from prisoners and so on, using AI to make decisions that involve life and death. You've got to program some values in there. You know you got to say this person's worth a hundred points, this person's worth thirty points.
5: I mean, it's yeah, kind of it's a crazy a, idea. It's an incredible thing to have to do. Yeah, nobody wants to do it as well. I felt like it was it was funny when you uh, asked them at the end about uh, what the car companies made of it. And they were like, oh, um, uh, yeah. Um, and they are kind of humming at on. And then he was like, well, actually, the government will have to make decisions. Like, oh, great. Yeah, off you go. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> as long as we don't have to make the decision, fine, yeah, go for it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I think you're 100 points. I, that's how I'd value you, Aidan.
5: Oh, thanks. Out yeah. of how many?
1: that would be telling of course um <laughs> do, do. 100 I'll just points be glad that mind. you're
5: not making the <laughs> yeah, call
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. i laughed too long at that one didn't i um so so uh, let's look at some of the comments from that how are you doing anyway i'm, I'm very good since I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tossing you to the ai gods i might as well feign interest in your life
5: yeah good. no it, it ha- hasn't been it hasn't been very interesting recently but um I'm trying to get out and about in as safe a way as possible, uh, while while we still can.
1: Um, right, let's have a look at um, some comments from last week. We were talking about um, COP twenty six, and someone says, "I respectfully suggest that the planet we live on is warming with or without our help. Deforestation is the serious issue. No oxygen, no life. Man is a selfish, dumb beast." Bob, from Dublin eight, um, I would agree with most of that, but I do think. The science is pretty solid, and I don't know why you're holding out in this, Bob. Like, what have you got to gain from it? Do you work for big tobacco or big oil or one of the big things? Um, You know, this is climate change is a scam. Oh, look, forget it. Um, I'm I'm not going to bother. We've got a few of those. You can imagine what they say. It's the same sort of stuff. People not listening to reason, and I don't think we should give them the oxygen that we are running
5: out of. Right, Aidan? Yeah. Hang on. We're talking about the science. I told you, is that the, the issue exactly? <laughs> it's not the most pressing issue. We're not running out of oxygen. Well, you were we running are out of running oxygen. Out. No, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, no, I knew
1: I was making sense. We are running out of oxygen because of deforestation.
5: Uh, yeah, but I mean, like the not climate run, change I, will, no, will do out. us way before the
1: oxygen goes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, not running out of oxygen. I don't know. I'm just tired. As I said before, very clearly, I'm tired and you made me do this i was like let's just not do it this week you have to do it right, But the so. listeners are glad
5: that you're here <laughs> oh they're
1: so they're so glad so last week we spoke to a guy who we called rowan clark or at least did we call him rowan clark or did he call himself rowan clark who came up with the pseudonym
5: it definitely wasn't me uh may i think you're going to have to search your memory the deep recesses of your tired no, it, it brain wasn't there it wasn't me either cuz it so, wasn't
1: me well uh, so the person we'll call James, because I don't want to say his real name, he came up with Rowan Clark. So uh, that's that's because I didn't come up with the name, but the name was come up with. Oh man, my whole language is just dying. I, my I can't speak. I cannot speak. I'm so tired. And um, so Paul emailed in about that. He said, "Hi Jonathan, really enjoyed the brilliant interview with the Defence Forces EOD officer." Uh, intelligent articulate and professional is what the DF is all about and this uh, interview epitomized that well done and great radio well, thanks very much for that paul um uh, paul has his uh, i i suspect that paul has um a strong allegiance with the defence forces what do you think he's he's like what spelled an, what out what on earth would give you that well, well, <laughs> well he's very not that he, you know, like i mean i he what a job like rowan had like i mean he's Disarming bombs so people don't blow up like an unbelievably admirable and fascinating and terrifying and stressful and there's no way I'd do it in a million years job. But uh, the reason why I think the the, the guy um, certainly knows his army stuff is because he 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 uh, he mentioned that it was an EOD officer, whereas I kept on saying bomb disposal experts. Um, so yeah. I, I, this person probably knows I a actually, bit about the army.
5: Yeah, in the briefing call, uh, the very the original briefing call with Roan uh, Stroke, Rudegger, Nieder, which is his name. I, I know that as well, like early on, I was like, okay, he, he was throwing out all these sort of acronyms and uh, words that I didn't understand. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, OK, got to tone that down. So, yeah, the fact that this person has said EOD just off the bat yeah. is I a little thing. Well, I mean, it,
1: well, and that's suspicious, but I think they might know a bit about maybe their they're former army, former defense forces or whatever. But anyway, another says people don't realize that he and many like him put his life on the line to save others. Well done. Thanks for sharing Go, Defence Forces, be all you could be. <laughs> is this a joke? Do we get at these as well? That, that's great. <laughs> like people are really into the Defence Forces, or these are uh, uh, these are military folk, is my thinking. And Connor says, A really great interview, as usual, Jonathan McRae. Thanks very much for that, Connor. Um, Ironically enough, I found the explanation of what Rowan couldn't say and what he could say and why he couldn't say the stuff he couldn't say to be the most illuminating aspect. Well, that was about five seconds of a... You know 30 minute interview so <laughs> thanks a lot connor but that i mean you say great interview and then you say the best bit was the five seconds out of the 30 minutes
5: it's like in jazz when the people say "Oh, yeah the best bit was the notes he didn't play that's that's the level you're working on Jonathan.
1: <laughs> excellent um right i am gonna sleep or drink or something um good to have you on again aiden uh, have a great weekend that's thanks. it from us for this week's future proof Producing was Aidan McAlvey, Simon Keane, Gareth Mahal, and Jojo Cardozo. Round out the rest of the team, thanks to all of them. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday, where we'll speak to Matt Bothwell about the universe we cannot see. It's a great one. Listen out for it. In the meantime, stay curious. Mm-hmm.
0: If you are 65 or over, or you have a weak immune system, you can now get your second COVID-19 booster vaccine. Your vaccine is due four months after your last vaccine. It will improve your protection from COVID-19. You can book a vaccination centre appointment on hsc.ie or contact a participating GP or pharmacy. For more information on your second booster or to book an appointment, visit hsc.ie or call our team in HSE Live on 1800 700 700 from the HSE for us all.